From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Seven minutes after 12, I'm Rob Fay in for Jill. Good afternoon, wherever you are. I hope you're staying well, and I hope you got your umbrella with you. It is wet outside wherever you are right now. Um, you know what? I was listening, as you might have just heard minutes ago, to Mike Smith's interview with John Rustad, leader of the BC Conservative Party, talking about the changes that he wanted to make to uh, the Surrey school system when it came to portables and potentially larger class sizes that I don't know if that statement truly has its finger on the pulse of what those in that community are thinking. But you know what? I'd rather get it from the experts. So let's go to Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis, kind enough to join me. Linda, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Well, it's my pleasure. And right out of the gates, I mean, two big things that came out of that interview today that we've known about for some time. But let's start with the portables. Uh, I was a portable kid in school. I didn't have any issue with it. Why is this such a, uh, uh, I guess you would say a you know, thing that he wants to draw his line in the sand with. Do you guys think that that's a big deal and the way to go? We absolutely need to get rid of the portables. The portables have been a permanent fixture in Surrey for far, far too long. I don't agree uh, with John Rustad's approach to it, however. I think that's just putting a Band-Aid on on the problem. It's a much larger problem. We need to fix the problem, not uh, just do short-term solutions. So if I, if I heard it correctly, basically we get rid of the portables, we move the kids inside. Yes, the classes might expand by three to four, but the challenge on my end, Linda, is if you're going to move the kids into the class and make a bigger grade, but that, those children need support and you got to keep those ratios in place. We can't just dump the teachers in that class, can we not? Well, absolutely not. We, but we do need to get together and get a plan in place. We've been talking about this for far too long. There's almost 400 portables here in Surrey, and Surrey is growing so rapidly, and we need to get a plan in place and get new schools built very quickly. I think, personally, we need to be thinking out of the box and looking for unique ways to get them built quickly, not just you know doing things like you know split classes, uh, you know having kids, um, you know, moving into classrooms and overcrowding them, those aren't solutions to me. What about the modular approach? Like, I know that um, the old tin can, (laughs) when it comes to my era, when it came to portables, it was just that tin can, and boy, was it cold in months like this. But um, you see these modular apartments that are being built. Would there be a happy compromise? Like, hey, we can't move you into the actual school, but we can make you a better portable, something that's more into the 2021st century, so to speak. I know that that's being tested out, and I think we need to look at every possible option. But other options I think we should be looking at is building you know, uh, more cookie-cutter-style schools. Each school in Surrey doesn't need to be an architectural masterpiece. We should be building uh, schools that are two, three, four stories high so that we can reduce the cost of land and get more schools built quickly. We also need to be looking, you know, we've got uh, a lot of high-rises going to Surrey in Surrey City Centre and along the SkyTrain corridor. We need to be looking at those buildings and putting schools in podiums uh, of apartment buildings uh, so that um, we can save cost on land and have the kids very accessible to their homes as well. And something else that I'm really advocating for in a large way is P3 partnerships. They've been hugely successful in Regina and Red Deer, we aren't looking at them at BC right now, and I think we should be. 
Linda Annis is Surrey City Councilor joining us here on the Jill Bennett Show. Um, have you heard this from parents? Have you heard this from the kids? Like I know in the political spectrum, it's a great, you know, gravitational point to try and get some votes. But are you actually hearing this from the families and the kids that the portables are the problem? we absolutely hearing a lot from parents and kids that they don't like the portables. You know, they're cold in the winter. They feel isolated from the rest of the school. Uh, some, some of them don't have bathrooms. And at the beginning of the school year this year in Surrey, we didn't even have enough portables. We had kids learning in unique places, gyms, staff, uh, lounges and places like that. That's not acceptable. The residents in Surrey pay school taxes for their kids to be in real schools. And we need to make sure that that happens. I want to talk about the classroom size and then the support that we need in these schools. And I'm, not, I'm going to pull this a little bit back from Surrey because I think this happens in a lot of jurisdictions. But the reality is, is we don't have enough EAs. We don't have teacher support. And one of the challenges here is we're talking about structures. We're talking about class size. We're talking about additional schools. And yet we have a shortage when it comes to teacher assistance. How are we going to be able to bridge that gap, especially if we're trying to build more schools in, in short order? Well, we absolutely need to get more teaching assistance. You know, to me, it's a very admirable profession, and we need to make sure that um, young people are aware of this as a great career opportunity, and we need to attract them to Surrey because you're 100% right. We need to have more teaching assistance, not just in schools in Surrey, but throughout British Columbia. Uh, it's absolutely critical so that all the kids are afforded the same opportunities. And, and final question for you, Linda, and I really do appreciate the time. You think of Surrey's growth over the next, let's say, decade, and everybody's talked about the fact that Surrey is growing leaps and bounds. We've talked about stadiums and all these other things, but do you feel that the pressure is enough right now that Surrey's actually going to be able to get something done, working with the provincial government, working you know, all across these different municipalities? Do you think it's feasible? Do you think it's doable? Or do you think this is just a lot of uh, political speak? It has to be doable. We have no option other than to get this done for our kids. Uh, we've got to start right from the get-go. Each school year, we always are under forecasting, which, which puts us further and further behind in having the right number of spaces. We need to get that piece fixed. But to me, it's not acceptable for us not to get this problem uh, resolved. Th these kids are our future, not just in Surrey, but in British Columbia. And we need to make sure that they've got the best education opportunity that they possibly can have. Linda, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Lots of Madonna today in the run. I'm a fan. I'm okay with that. That's no problem. 34 minutes after 12. I'm Rob Faye. Welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. Uh, here till 3 to before we pass the baton forward to one Jazz Joe Hall. Well, lots of things going on in the world of travel. And anytime we talk travel, we bring in the best in the business. Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, there really is a lot going on. And the first one is actually quite serious. And I thought we should just chat about this rise in measles mm -hmm. cases around the world. Well, let's get into that because Health Canada is making some recommendations. Yeah, they are. Dr. Teresa Tam, our um, chief public health officer, has 
implored people to take a look at their immunization records, particularly with respect to measles. So as we head into spring break, there is this global surge in measles activity, and many people may not even realize that. But if you combine that with the decline in measles vaccination coverage among school-aged children in Canada, and that was because I think a lot of people got, you know, vaccination um, lax when, during COVID. So you've now got these school-aged kids who... If they travel over spring break, as many families do, and they're in areas where measles is, they can import that back into Canada and potentially start transmission in communities. None of us want that. Um, what I will remind people of is when you're a little, uh, about 12 to 15 months old, uh, that was kind of the norm for people to get their first dose of the measles vaccine. And then you would get it a, the second dose just before you start school. If you're like me, and you had a paper copy, you may not remember. And so it would just be important if you if you don't know, um, if you receive those two shots, you can get a booster and that would protect you. Ideally, you want to get it two weeks before you travel. But even if it's just a few days before, it will have some level of protection. So just a reminder. Um, the other thing that I would say, just since we're on this topic, is that I don't travel without ensuring that I have hepatitis A and B up to date, as well as tetanus. And I always check the website, which is travel.gc.ca. Uh, put in the destination that I'm traveling to, and then I check what other health protocols might be necessary that I know where, where I'm, for where I'm going. I, I find it interesting because I'm of the paper generation as well. And, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the booster because I was going to ask you, like, was that one of those things where you can just say, hey, top me up? So I, I'm glad yeah. to know that that is a, a possibility. Well, one uh, airline that doesn't need topping up because they're no longer in business is Lynx Air. But there's still a lot of questions surrounding how those who got stranded can get their money back. Yeah, this is a really rough situation for a lot of people. And, you know, there's this is just one of many airlines that I've seen go to the wayside. And it's always a mess when an airline shuts down with really very little notice. And in this case, it was like like three days notice. And so people were in destination and now they're having to book themselves to get back and paying Certainly not what the fare they paid on Lynx was. So now they're, you know, paying double, maybe triple. So WestJet came to the table. So did Air Canada. Actually, Air Canada's expired uh, on the February 26th, but WestJet's is still available until tomorrow, February the 29th. So just keep that in mind if you're in destination or you have friends or family that are in destination, you can get a flight back. Those are on the routes that were serviced by Lynx. Um, but for anyone who has an unused ticket, uh, some things that you should know. The first is call your credit card to get a refund. Also, if you have any sort of travel insurance that covers you for trip cancellation and interruption, you should start a claim with your insurance company. And if you still want to travel to the destination that you're holding a Lynx null and void ticket for, do that as soon as possible because that's going to ensure you get not only the best availability, but also the best rates because there's a lot of people that are in the same boat now needing to rebook for, for trips. You know, Claire, one of the things that I had heard is that people who were trying to make a credit card claim were getting denied by the companies because they said until Lynx Air finalizes their bankruptcy and insolvency, they can't officially start the paperwork on their end. Is that is that anything that you've heard yet? 
Uh, that, that may be the case. So if you are getting that type of a response, just keep trying and keep um, yeah. keep putting the NOA. It's such a hassle. Um, but it would be like drawing blood from a stone. I said that last week, trying to get your money back from links. So they would have spent those as, you know, there, there is no money to be had there. So this will be your only recourse. Well, let's talk about something better. Air Canada vacation, uh, their capacity for summer sunshine looks like it's uh, it's going to be increasing. Yeah, this is really great. So from across Canada, some will be serviced nonstop from from here in Vancouver. Others will be via a, a you know, Toronto or a Montreal or, or something. But um, they're going to be doing some popular year-round sun destinations in a kind of increased capacity. Punta Cana, um, Samana, Cancun, um, Montego Bay, Barbados, Nassau, Turks and Caicos, and more. So they're going to add more frequency and capacity, particularly to Cancun area. It's been really, really popular. We will have those from Vancouver. Um, Liberia, Costa Rica from Toronto will now be serviced more often, twice a week. So there will be some new destinations. There will be increased service to the ones we all love. And for families, if you love um, Disney, whether that's in mm. Florida or California, there'll be increased capacity as well as to their Aulani Resort, which is the one uh, on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Pretty nice to have Mickey come and say hi yep. when you're uh, holding a Mai Tai as the parent. Well, I'll tell you <laughs> what, looking outside the uh, office today, I'd book any of those trips. Um, speaking of trips, Claire, you sent over a handful of really good deals on some pretty cool destinations. Yeah, there's some really good destinations. And, and I'm looking outside at the rain, too. And I think a lot of people still wanting some sunshine. So um, I, I have put on the Riviera Maya, May, uh, sorry, March the 7th, 10th, 11th, or, which is all before spring break or after. So April the 10th, 11th, 24th or 25th, I'm seeing airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive for eight ninety-five. The taxes on that are 480 and I thought the next deal really great price for a seven night Mediterranean cruise the itinerary is spectacular really focuses on Spain France and Italy three of my faves mm. um, and in September September 23rd or 30th which those are the times that I love because the crowds are gone the weather's still great but it's nowhere near as expensive this is a seven night cruise it comes with a hundred US dollar onboard credit per cabin 859 the taxes wow. of $148, so a really good buy. I do have one for um, a little closer to home, to you, Clulet. For those who know it, it's the Canadian Princess Lodge, and they're giving listeners um, who listen to us or Global until May the 16th a night's hotel, complimentary room upgrade if it's available, free Wi-Fi and free parking, $99, the taxes of 36 So that's a nightly rate, whether you have one person or two people in the room. So a really good bargain. That's fantastic. I love it. You've yeah, given me something <laughs> around the world, down south, and even just in my own backyard. Claire, always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you for the time. Thanks so much, Rob. Welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. I'm Rob Fay. Glad to have you along for the ride today. Well, five former members of Canada's World Junior Hockey Team who were charged with sexual assault in the 2018 incident in London, Ontario, have now been chosen to be tried by a jury. Dylan Dubay, Carter Hart, Michael McLeod, Cal Foote, and Alex Formanton were charged with sexual assault last month. McLeod is the only one facing an additional charge of sexual assault for being party 
to the offense. To talk a little bit more about this as to why they may have gone the route of the jury, David Butt, former crowd attorney and now works as a defense lawyer in Toronto. David, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be here. Well, thank you for uh, your time today. Why would they choose the jury? I know in cases of this magnitude, that might be the road to take, but maybe you could give me the actual um, legal jargon as to why they went this road. Sure. Bear in mind that they just had their first court appearance a few weeks ago, and this case is in its very early stages. And at the very early stages, before they've done all the preparation, you want to keep as many options open as possible. And so if you choose jury at the very beginning, you can always much more easily change your mind and go with just a judge. But if you choose just a judge early, then you can lose the opportunity to opt for a jury. So if you want to keep all options open as long as possible, you always choose a jury at the very beginning. And you can change that later if you want. I want to talk about the selection of the jury because I think that's really key in a case that's got obviously these five young men that are charged with sexual assault, allegedly. Um, But the reality is, is you're almost worried about the brand as much as the players. I mean, everybody in Canada knows Hockey Canada. I mean, it's a a part of our DNA. So how do you select a jury that uh, that doesn't know the brand as much as the players? That's uh, a real concern in a high-profile case, many different kinds of high-profile cases, you have that challenge when you're selecting a jury. And in Canada, we have a very limited uh, process for questioning jurors. So uh, with the judge's prior approval, you may be allowed to ask uh, a couple of questions, not a lot, a couple of questions of each prospective juror. For example, would the publicity that you've read about this case affect your judgment? And it's really a very limited vetting uh, process. And then during the trial, they will be reminded repeatedly to decide the case based solely on the evidence that they hear during the uh, actual trial and to pay no attention to anything they read or hear in the media. Of course, the media reporting on the case is enormously important for all the rest of us across the country. It's just the jurors that will be told to ignore everything but what they hear in the courtroom. Uh, David, can you talk a little bit more about jurors and, and being sequestered in this one? I would imagine that that's going to be the case uh, for sure in this instance, but can you talk about the reasoning for that and, and just what goes into a juror trying to keep his wits or her wits or their wits about them um, with everything going on around them? Sure. Uh, the... Uh, Uh, sequestering of juries is very different than perhaps some of your listeners might think when they they hear about uh, sequestering in the United States. Here in Canada, we only sequester juries for the very brief period of time that they're spending actually deciding the case. So during the days or weeks that they are hearing evidence in the case every day, they're free to go home at night. And so they are only sequestered for a very short period of time when they're actually deliberating to reach their their verdict. And during that time, the reason for that is they want um, the jurors to focus exclusively on the evidence they've heard and discuss it amongst themselves. They may get to take some of the evidence back into their jury room to review together, Uh, but they they have to focus exclusively on that. So they're sequestered. So they're not watching uh, um, again, media coverage mm-hmm. of the, uh, the 
the trial. Because there's going to be extensive coverage of this trial. And, and that, to me, is something I actually didn't know, is that the only time they get sequestered is when they're actually trying to come up with their verdict. How on earth, and because I think this case is going to take multiple days, considering there's five personalities here, how on earth sure. are they going to, do you just not watch TV? Like, how do you go about trying not to at least get persuaded or at least see the information that's out there? Is it a publication ban? Is it taking the media out of the equation? No. Uh, it's not, and and there's really good reasons for that. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that the media plays a crucial role in the fairness of our justice system. We have an open, accessible justice system only to the extent, really, that we have good media coverage of our courts, uh, because you know very few people can actually spend the time sitting in a courtroom all day. So the media plays a crucial role in making sure that our justice processes are, are public and, and are brought to the attention of the public. So no, um, banning media is, is a non-starter, and that's a really good thing. Uh, but um, the judge will, at the end of every day, before they go home at night, if it's a jury, will say, now remember, I told you at the beginning, I'm going to tell you every single day, <laughs> don't decide this case based on anything you read in the media. And the judge will say, I recommend you don't consume any media on this case. Watch your favorite TV show instead. Hmm. Uh, you know, so that's, that's the message that will be repeatedly drummed in. And I think that most lawyers will tell you that in their experience, jurors do conscientiously approach their task and, and, and do try their best to follow judges' instructions. We see very few perverse jury verdicts overall in this country, at least in my experience. And, and David, one more question for you to get back to the actual players that are uh, you know, accused of this crime. Now that you've got a jury, now that you've got your peers that are looking at you, listening to all the testimony here, how do these players who are, again, in their early 20s and, you know, how do you coach them up as a, as a legal mind to say, listen, your emotions, your movement, everything about you in that courtroom, uh, courtroom is being examined. I mean, how do you coach up a player that might be nervous considering the allegation itself and the things that are being put on trial? How do you make sure that they can keep their composure? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question that any good trial lawyer that deals with high-profile cases will spend a lot of time with. And, and there are various approaches to that. I mean, obviously, talking a lot about uh, the dynamics of a courtroom, educating your clients about the dynamics of a courtroom, what kinds of behavior are considered acceptable, what kinds are not. And, you know, different places, you don't behave the same way in a bar that you do in a church or a synagogue or a mosque. Right. So it's just about learning what kinds of behavior are acceptable and appropriate, what kinds are not. And then uh, working with the individuals and their own levels of anxiety and stress and saying, OK, well, uh, you know, if it would help you to be taking notes carefully just to keep your mind occupied, let's do that. Mm. So, you know, there are, there are techniques, but you're, it's always a matter of sitting down with that client and saying, OK, how can we best help you? manage this process because they will have to be sitting in a courtroom paying attention for as you say quite rightly days perhaps weeks yeah and the cameras and knowing that this is national news dare i say international news is uh, is a variable that is going to be really interesting to watch david your insight second to none i really appreciate you making time for us this evening and hopefully we'll get to do this again glad to chat thanks so much Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.